0: Welcome to this Global Ideas Labs podcast where we take a deeper dive into the important issues at the heart of global health and development. My name's Lloyd Nash from Global Ideas and today we're here to talk about how we might support Australian refugees to thrive, not just survive. In this lab our approach is a little bit different. At Melbourne's Multicultural Hub we sat and shared a meal while hearing about the lived experience of refugees and asylum seekers. We explored identity and community and how we might improve the health and social outcomes for refugees and asylum seekers in Australia. Peter Johnson from Adult Multicultural Education Services kicks off the conversation about the global context of forced displacement and Australia's experience welcoming refugees. Then we break into small groups to discuss at a more granular level the barriers to settlement, gaps in services, community discrimination and mental health issues facing refugees. In this podcast, we hear from Mustafa Najib, the Social Cohesion Community Development Officer at the City of Greater Dandenong, who is a refugee from Afghanistan and has an incredible story to share. With his permission, we have also captured his small group discussion over dinner about some of the highs and lows of his journey seeking asylum in Australia. This podcast is with thanks to Melbourne's Multicultural Hub, Amy's, and the team at Global Ideas as well as the refugees who have come along to share a meal and share their stories. It's a gripping discussion and I hope you enjoy. Over to you, Peter.
1: I really do appreciate uh, you coming along because it's a topic of um, a sort of more plenary uh, sharing of his story and then time to break up and hear from uh, the, our other guests. Uh, but we want to focus on um, some of the big picture, the context, context that is happening at the moment uh, in terms of the idea of integration, and we've got a, a major issue happening uh, globally around the world in terms of uh, people being displaced, 65.6 million forcibly displaced people, and 300,000 more than 2015. So, And that's a trend that's been increasing since uh, when you look at um, the Second World War, um, and. T- where these sort of figures have been started to be recorded and we start seeing some of the key features that are coming in at the moment where we've got uh, 22.5 million refugees, the highest number ever reached. That's significant. If we go down to uh, where some of these uh, problems that are occurring, 55% from Syria, Afghanistan and South Sudan. Now South Sudan is something close to my heart. We lived in Sudan for eight years, up in Khartoum, and then two years in Kenya. And with the, the broader context, we also come to the issue where we've got the uh, anxieties of receiving communities. Now that's something that's been uh, heightened of, of recent times, particularly with what's going on uh, around the world, some of the uh, recent incidents in London, for example. There are multiple factors for this increased anxiety. One of the big challenges is uh, the global connectivity. It's not actually a challenge, it's actually an opportunity, but the the fact is that we live in a 24-7 news cycle. We actually hear of things far more than we ever used to. Uh, We could be ignorant before, but now there's no no chance of us being ignorant. Uh, Increased reports of terrorism, the perception that it could happen to us, it seems so close to us and the anxiety, and so it could actually happen. And once again, this perception The actual statistics, um, if we look at reality, the statistics of actually being involved in a terrorist um, attack or event are extremely slim, but the perception has been raised. And that brings a lot of fear and anxiety amongst the populace. Political discourse, with with this perception of, of increased... Uh, anxiety, there's a need from the political party a need to do something. You know, and uh, you, you'll see the sense of that with, the, with media response and also from our politicians. You know, we have to do something in response to this. Once again, you say, OK, it's a, uh, disproportionate to the real threat. And then we have the echo, echo chamber effect, and we have the possibility that you know, our own attitudes can be simply reinforced by other people who we actually coalesce around. In other words, we don't actually look for a dissonant voice. That, that has, has an opposing voice that may have uh, that to that may uh, temper um, some some of those anxieties. Okay, now a definition of integration. Very hard to actually say what integration is. That first quote there's no single general accepted definition uh, and so what I'm going to be presenting is um, this operational definition of a concept that was actually done from a UK study that was uh, done back in 2008 and I think it's really helpful. Okay and so what they talk about in the study is actually domains and so you look at these markers and means so right down the very foundation is uh, of all these is rights and citizenships. Now fortunately with our Australian policy we have a situation where uh, our refugees have permanent resident status when they come in, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, I worked in Nauru for 14 uh, months. Unfortunately, there they had no rights or citizenship, no PR status. Uh, they couldn't own property uh, as refugees. Uh, they had a, a limited tenure. Uh, so in terms of settlement, right from the very get-go, okay, that foundational element, the guys on, on Nauru and Man Manus, had no hope. The area where I've been interested in the last uh, year particularly is these areas of social connections, social bridges, social bonds and social links. Generally, people come together uh, from overseas, they tend to bond together in their own ethnic group. That's very normal. We went and lived in Sudan. We saw an Aussie, ah, oh, man, it was like a long-lost uh, relative. Yeah, you, you really bonded very well. And that's very normal, and uh, it's actually quite essential Uh, to the settlement process. In addition to that is these social bridges and it's really important that people have the opportunities to go beyond their uh, ethnic group and actually make connections and networks outside that. Um, And social links are access to universal services. Generally, uh, most migrants coming into a new country do not access universal services as much as the, the normal citizens do in PRs. Okay, so there's the objectives I've had for the last year uh, and the other senior managers is to connect and engage people, uh, create environments which are safe and secure, uh, to increase economic inclusion, uh, to establish and maintain organisational partnerships which can actually benefit that. Okay, the new arrivals journey, it's a torturous Process. You know, from planning the welcome, uh, orientation of the law and customs and culture, independence, work and income, uh, and then up to final integration. So it's, it's a process for, for people. That's really a, a snapshot of the first year uh, when a, a refugee first arrives. Quite a challenge in terms of all the things they have to navigate. Uh, as a settlement provider we have case management which actually helps uh, in that process. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a, a lot of work in that first year to actually get or start to be embedded into a society. I'll quickly go over this. Obviously, with South Sudan, for the time that we were there, and unfortunately um, now still uh, having uh, massive problems in the South in terms of ongoing warfare and displacement. Um, it's uh, periods of peace and then, unfortunately, the uh, tribal uh, warfare usually is sectarian with the different tribes that have been long histories. Um, yeah, quite challenging, but that's, that's in some ways representative of what's going on in many countries of where, where warfare is you know, happening at the moment. And these are some of the barriers to full participation. Uh, unfortunately, racism, social stigma and exclusion, uh, that is a fact you know, that we are so sometimes afraid of the other. Uh, it's, it's very interesting, even when you come into a room like this, is that how we actually relate to one another um, and where the connections are. Uh, social isolation and lack of support uh, can be very isolating if you haven't got language, um, very, very difficult to uh, break out into a community. Uh, separation isolation from families, friends and social networks, that's very, very true. A lot of people are independent, uh, coming over by themselves. And so to actually connect, they can't, uh, asylum seekers for example don't have family reunion. Uh, the new, under TPVs, uh, the temporary protection visa uh, regime, they will never have their families uh, reunited with them whilst they're under that visa category. Uh, Very, very challenging. Um, So lots of different um, challenges that have to be faced. As I said, as you have a chance to discuss with our guests, um, these are some of the things that uh, it'd be good to actually think through with them. There are providers that can help, fortunately. Uh, There's a lot of uh, support in the community, both in terms of uh, contracted uh, uh, organisations such as ourselves, but there's a lot of other agencies that um, can actually help the settlement process. And so part of the response for this evening's topic is, what's next for you guys? Okay, how can you be involved, recognising that there's a a broader context, and issue that's going on, but we actually have uh, refugee and asylum seekers among us ourselves. Uh, we've been in the business for a long time. Uh, we have those different areas: sort of education, employment, and social participation. Uh, we're a, a big provider. Unfortunately, this lost a big contract, so we're having major changes to our organisation. Uh, a lot of us are leaving on Friday, uh, which is a big hit. But nonetheless, uh, AIMS will still exist and continue to do the service that we've uh, been doing so for so long in the past. Look forward to meeting and chatting with you further. Thank you.
2: Thanks, man. Um, um, I'm a bit nervous, I'll tell you why. Um, in Afghanistan, when we do the, the final year 12 exam, only the ones who get 99, you know, the ones that you see in Victoria, there's only a few of them every year. Those guys get to medicine and, and help. They become doctors. And now I know there's a lot of doctors in this room. So, um, Anyway, <laughs> thanks, Peter. Thanks, uh, Ming, for inviting me. And thanks, um, thank, thank you um, for having me here. I was born in Afghanistan in 1978. It was the start of the, uh, the war in Afghanistan uh, between the Soviet Union and the Afghan Islamic um, jihadists that were supported by the West at the time. Uh, similar to the conflict in Syria today, the, that conflict caused some um, millions of lives, mostly Afghans, and some 8 million Afghans by the year 2001 had become refugees. You saw Peter's statistics: 5.5 million Syrians today and the highest number globally we have had, but in 2001 that was another time when numbers hit really high and 8 million of them were Afghans. Um, only a fraction of the 8 million in 2001 the, was arriving in Australia, something like 8,000 or 10 or 20,000, but that was a fraction of the 8 million Afghans. Um, as a six, six 7 seven-year-old child, I do. Um, I remember growing up in the village that uh, is about 60, 65 kilometers out of outside of Kabul. My village. I recall the Russian jet fighters uh, dropping bombs daily, uh, while the local jihadists, including my five teachers in the school that I, I, I had, so the, these people would um, be shooting back to the jet fighters, the the Russian jets, and. Uh, for us children, those guys were heroes. Um, sometimes they, um, I remember these two guys who, from my village who was um, trained in using Stinger missiles. The Stinger is the one that Ronald Reagan at the time gave to uh, Afghan Mujahideens to take down the jet fighters. So these are laser-guided um, rockets that just you just shoot them. It follows and get the, the, the jet fighters down. Um, <coughs> Some 39 years later today, Afghanistan continues to be a battlefield for international wars, not just Afghan wars, uh, while it also changes shape um, as the world changes, uh, but, it, but something stays the same to me, at least this is how I, th- I feel. The, uh, the name changes, the branding changes, like the, you know, the business brands, but they, the guys there are the same people. So from Mujahideen to Taliban to Al-Qaeda and to ISIS and something that will be coming up next. I feel that in the last 40 years, that's what, is this, what has been the story in Afghanistan. Now, fast forward because of my short time here. Um, 2001, uh, 16 years ago from today. Another personal memory I have is um, in, inside a bus, one of these... Um, Small buses, 20 or 30 people. Um, I was uh, basically half out from the window and I was talking to a group of journalists, Australian journalists. I think they were Channel 9 or Channel 7. Uh, so these guys um, were asking a question, and these fellow asylum seekers who were inside the bus were asking me, you, you know some English, so tell them, tell them. I remember telling that news crew, and I think that is captured here. Um, I've seen myself, you know. With a bit of beard and moustache, because uh, anyway, it was because we were kept inside the um, Australian Navy for 28 days without any equipment, no, to, no no shavers or nothing. So I looked quite. I didn't I didn't I didn't like having beard at the time particularly because I was coming from Afghanistan and we were forced to have beard and you know uh, anyway. So I was I remember saying to that news crew. Um, Please let us in, we're human beings, we're refugees. And that was just a few weeks or, a f- or at least one month or two months after the 9-11 incident in 2001. Um, the Australian election campaign was on here in, in Australia. and I guess some of you would remember. I, I think a lot of young people probably don't remember. It was a long time ago. But anyway, John Howard won by, s- by convincing the Australian community, or at least telling people, the voters, we want to come we want to decide who comes to this country basically based on what Peter kind of mentioned there them and us that these are different to us you know we really need to be careful with these ones because this young man coming from Afghanistan with his beard you know he is potentially trained in bin Laden's camp in in Afghanistan not knowing that those 8 million peoples were first victims of terrorism and and these people the, the, the extremists for decades. Anyway, so I've witnessed firsthand the impacts of politics of identity and lack of human and civil rights, both in my home country, Afghanistan, and here in Australia. In Australia, for the last 16 years, I have witnessed how, on a daily basis, at least, if not weekly, the, the media and the Australian people are stuck on the asylum seeker debate it goes and goes and every time, believe me, the same discussion that I was hearing 16 years ago, I still here. I see something in the paper every day or the TV or somewhere, you know, internet. It's clearly driven by politics of identity, ethno-nationalism and fear. It seems that is bringing votes and politicians know and they use it and they love it as well. Uh, today ironically the other similarity in the kind of global perspective is the, the strong similarity of this kind of identity politics, tribalism, division, uh, politics of you know dividing people, um, is, um, and also the, the fact that our values as human beings, universal values of you know, respect, these are, these are under attack. Not just in Afghanistan, but also here in Australia, in the US, and we see a lot of examples every day, looking on the positives. It's confusing for all of us, however, there are many opportunities. I think these, these situations also gives us a chance to reflect and to think w- w- what next. Diversity for Australia is a strength. As a country, this Australia, this place has a lot of opportunity to be a leader in this space with you know, the global tension going up and up. Today, for example, I feel <coughs> obliged to come back and talk to groups of people like yourselves because I feel welcome, not by John Howard and how he f- made me feel, or, or the many others that were there with me, and you know, since you've been to Nauru last year. Um, <clears throat> but because of the community, because of the, the day I arrived here in Melbourne, people picked me up. The government, I was given no settlement support because TPV holders were not entitled for any of those. One night accommodation, $200, I was let go. And for that, I, I survived. I'm here today. I've got, you know, a master's degree given by Australian universities. I, I'm employed. You know, the things that you had on the... I, I put myself through that. I said, oh, I actually think most of this, you know, I, I'm a citizen now. But that was because of the community, because of the people like yourselves who, you know, spend their time and, you know, try to find out and try to help when, when others don't. So basically, I think this is an opportunity um, I, it made me, even today, feel feel belong to a community like this and feel like I want to come back and give, you know, so I, I want to contribute to this. So let's promote awareness and understanding, you know. I believe that Australia, as a community, we have a lot to celebrate. We need to, um, you know, take the discussion around asylum-seeking refugees from out of that negative cycle. There's a lot of positive things, you know, um, we really need to highlight those. But we desperately need responsible national leadership in regards to refugees and asylum seekers. And um, we should not demonise innocent people for political gain. We need politicians who do not demonise just for the purpose of gaining some votes. So this is actually, it requires some courage and uh, I think... Um, there, there, there are other ways, but I'm happy to later in a talk in, in the group as well. So thank you. I think I'm right on time. <laughs> thank you, uh, thanks for uh, listening. Well,
1: definitely. Want to hear it again, but with
2: the photos. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I think I have the photos in my phone. Oh. So these, these are the guys with, this man has his kalashnikov you know, he's one of the teachers and oh this, gosh. this other one has a rocket launcher in his shoulder and <laughs> okay. his face, but as I said, you know the, you, see, you see the ruin of the school, because this was bombed yeah, a couple of times and we had a cave dug right next to our, and every time the jet comes, you know you hear the sound first and you've got about 20 seconds, okay. 30 seconds to get into the cave before the bombs arrive and these guys would sit in the front of the cave and start shooting and we'd be all inside but these men are you know like that that they were They were, to us they were freedom fighters really mm-hmm. and um, and but you know that these guns were coming from US for them and the money was coming from them um, this school in fact yeah well this this in this school had a, um I I remember our notebooks had a UNICEF sign and underneath, in in Farsi, there was Swedish Committee for International Aid in Afghanistan, so I I couldn't believe that Sweden would send money to these guys. In fact, they were, so, I mean, that's the story, and and this area still, like, at the moment there's Taliban very close to these guys, and the the war continues Four days later, Mm -hmm. but that's, yeah, that's just... What what did you find the hardest thing was when you first came here mm. to, to try and start? Uh, the hardest thing, mm. um, and it should, it should, like you arrived. And yeah, then you took your life. I think the the emotional aspects were the hardest. So I I was uh, I was by myself. I had gone through a detention center um, for two years. I didn't expect that. You know when I was. Um, and before that, I had already gone through a lot of trauma. Mm. Arriving here, starting everything from zero, and going through a detention center, I, initially, I felt numb. I wasn't happy. Like, I had tried s- hard. I had risked my life by boat to, be, to get here. And the day that I landed here, I was a sad man. Like I was a broken, sad man. I did not smile. So what
0: do you think does it
2: turn to? Draw back to those more welcoming. Mm. Or is it
0: political courage, or is it a change in the yeah. um, broader discourse of what refugee, what a mm. refugee can contribute? Can
2: contribute. I think uh, so. Definitely, politics is a big part of it there's a lot of statistics that show that you know migrants in general contribute and refugees are also amongst some of the you know biggest contributors in terms of economy growth you know prosperity and and of course they but politics comes in when tra- when politicians especially you know at the national leadership level like prime minister or, or immigration minister currently they try to tell Australians in, the, in plain words that these people are a burden, they're a risk and they're, they're, we need to be fearful of them. they're, they're not worthy of our and, and whether you know, like Peter said, you know the statistics show something different but the perception in the community grows based on what media says driven by, driven by politicians. So I think that they have a lot to answer for because they are driving it. And so uh, it, how do you change that, like in your experiences, Yeah. having told your story many times yeah. like, I'm sure you've met a lot of yeah. high profile individuals, how do you change that, is it, is it just a political narrative or is it just, like how do you uh, change it Well sadly it has, as you said, it's becoming worse and worse so from the time, I think it started with Tampa in 2001 and I think it went hand on hand with Um, issues of terrorism and Islamic extremism and um, so blurring the two together, submitting it as a package or something to be fearful, not breaking it down, not breaking down further, um, this is the strategy that politicians have used. I don't know what the answer would be. I think there is if we remove us from this example and think about the global example, in the US today, you know, enough people voted for Donald Trump. Enough, There were enough people in the community that bought his message. <laughs> And his message is not exactly on refugees, but it is around the same space. Yeah, And you can see that the same scenario. In uh, what we also miss, and I think I referred that, there's increasingly similarities between places like Afghanistan and, and Australia, the, the Philippines and, and Australia. Oh, not not so much the Philippines and U.S. You know, where they, you demonize a group of people. You know, marginalize. Inclusion is no longer the the you know the principle. So you basically say no; these people it's, are not part of it. Yeah. We will have to push them. We will have to get rid of them. I think that's the build-up, and it's dangerous because when we say, when we look at history, most world wars and most of these conflicts have started based on these lines, you know, dividing people and trying to build on us and them kind of mentality. So I don't know. I don't know the answer. What can be done? But but I don't. What I know the problem. I think maybe maybe the answer is also with with the problem. For example the fact that you and I are sitting here today around the table and sharing story I think this would have not been possible 60 years ago maybe, it's yeah. not so much it's increasingly possible so maybe you know social media is giving us that fear you know the increasing global move, people movement is making us uncomfortable but that probably will hopefully at some stage will make us m- better informed so I'm, I'm, I'm again, I, as a migrant, I always think in two contexts. I think about my mom, my mom and dad, my, my family, the village that I, I told you the stories. So that village is changing today. It's changing because my family is changing. My dad was one of those men who had a gun and was fighting the Russians. But today, he's a different man, you know? Back at the time, my two older sisters couldn't go to school because he didn't really support them. He let me go to school. Today, he's the two younger sisters we have. Or my, I have. He is actively encouraging them to be, you know, to get a higher education. And so he has changed. He has changed not because of the situation has changed significantly in his village, but because I have came to Australia, lived there for 15 years. I'm directly in touch. You know, my phone vibrates every second because my my the group of people that I'm in Viber with or in um, Snapchat or, you know, the all these other ones I have in my Most of them live in Afghanistan. So we communicate and I share knowledge. I share the same story that I share with you today about them. I share the same story of you guys with them. And they, they often ask me, what are the Christian people like? And I tell them, you know, this. what are the Australians like? I tell them, "The for my village people at the time, there was good and evil. The good is people who are innocent people, like you know them, the bad ones are those ones who come and kill them for no reason. And once, you know, once you get down that plane, you see that the guy who drives this is a white guy and with blonde hair, you know, in Russia, it's like, is the white people evil? You know, that's the mentality. So they haven't seen another world. They didn't have TV, they didn't have news, they did not have the education. How can you change the mindset of the extremists? You know, other men like myself in in Afghanistan, you know, in their 30s or 40s now, they're still fighting because they haven't seen another world. They have not had this opportunity to sit around the table and learn from you guys, right, from a community like this. So that's the other side of the table, you know what I mean? Societies in, 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 in places like Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria can significantly benefit from migration itself as well. I transfer not just money back home, you know, through my work. I send 50-60% of my income to my family, who's, you know, an extended family of, like, my sisters, my uncles, my aunties. But I also talk to them. I also tell my, 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 my auntie to make sure that your daughter goes, goes to school. So this is the kind of connection that is the opportunity I'm referring to. I think this is what we could do, we we need to engage more, we need to talk more I think about these things. I wanted
0: to ask myself, do yeah. you have many um, refugees, asylum seekers contacting you, like is your name
2: still being passed to around? Um, I, I am, I'm in touch with uh, a large community, um, but I, I I think I, uh, and this is another area and you doctors will probably have answers for it.
0: Um, in,
2: uh, once you're lost in that kind of like I have not always been this clear about where I am what am I doing here you know the the crisis the 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 crisis identity crisis where you really belong here or not you know it took me six seven years especially when I was on a TPV I would regularly get immigration update to get deported you're not getting deported but I was getting the same warnings all the time that you've you'll have to leave Um, so with that in mind I never felt part of this community in full like i thought well you know sooner or later i'll be deported so i'll need to prepare myself for that life um, i think uh, for that reason the discussion has sometimes varied for example i at times i've said nah you know it's not worth it just go back don't don't and partly i think we as human beings we have different responses to different emotional situations So. Someone had asked me in another talk that um, what was the most difficult thing about being an asylum seeker. The journey, not in Australia, the journey. And I remember this minute that the Australian uh, SAS soldier who was in the Navy, um, he was the the captain, so assumably he was more educated than others. Um, a, a 14-year-old boy next to me hadn't eaten for eight days. We all hadn't eaten, and this boy um, um, asked for some more food. And I know the boy from the village because his uh, his parents were the most um, in, in our village. They were the most uh, philanthropic. So they, his grandfather would supply food to so many poor fam the poorest all year round. But this boy was asking for some food because he was so hungry. And the, the, um, the major uh, Australian soldier, he was a major, I think, he turned back and used like 15 F-words in a row to tell him that Vakba shut up and said, don't ask me for food, in you know. it. I just felt so embarrassed. I felt so broken that minute. I wanted to be killed by the Taliban brutally but not being sworn at by an Australian person. like, why did I do this? You know, I want to go back, I want to die right now. I just don't want to see this, you know? Because until that minute, I, as a someone who had an education, I still had hope that in the world, there are others who are not in this space, you know, that for me, the Taliban men who were torturing me and my family were uneducated, perhaps, didn't know anything better, they hadn't seen anything better. But this man had an opportunity to be educated, to know a bit better than what he was. So that was a really low point in my experience. And I think um, it's relevant to this because in my 10 years, 15 years here, I have not always felt to be a refugee advocate. I feel like I want to get out of this. You know, I don't want to be in refugee discussions for the rest of my life. I want to, I want to move on like everyone else, you know? So you, when you see a lot of other refugees, if you ask them, "Did you come as a refugee?" they might say, "No, I didn't." You know, it's like, "No, I, I'm not as bad as those guys." You know, I've heard a lot of friends of mine, other asylum seekers. If you ask them outside, you know, they look like me. Where are you from? They'd say, "Oh, I'm half Filipino, half Russian." It's like, okay, good. <laughs> this is my friend saying that. I know them, and they just don't want to. They just don't want to say that. I Actually, came by boat. Because it's so embarrassing, it's a bad thing to be, you know? Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry uh, let's, let's focus on solution, what can we? done. <laughs> yeah. So in that example, that um, the graph that uh, Peter showed, integration to me, is not just all of those things done for me by someone else. It's myself actively working to, to get that. And I don't know if all families of refugees would work for that whether they know and have the capacity and knowledge, like I was lucky to get an education therefore I'm in a different position, but what about all the other ones, so generally from the number of community members that I know directly, they would love it, they they are on the same page, not in the same way, but you know some of them wouldn't like to come and talk about their experience just because it yeah. makes them feel like Yeah, that. Yeah, because I, I, I do this for the same reason that you do, for example, you, you, f- you believe in it, you s- <laughs> see as passion, and I come back and, you know, I do this a lot, I go to different groups, and it's usually really hard to talk about yeah. yourself, yeah. Like, I know, it's so nervous, yeah. ner- <laughs> and sh- opening up, okay. but, yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, you know, this is, um, so the other side is that refugees also, or Muslims, Others, I guess, in a way, they um, they need to work a bit more actively. I think
0: it's pretty hard if you don't necessarily have a feeling of security. Mm. I think it's difficult yeah. to go out and trust the community around. Yeah, sort of but but
2: this, this is the thing. So I'll tell you another story. This time, this time in a different context, in Sydney Road, about ten years ago, there was a, an afghani restaurant, a kebab shop. One of my really good friends, she asked me, said, let's go and have an Afghani kebab from your culture. I said, okay, let's go there. Um, and, and she is a blonde Australian born here and, and a few generations. Um, when we were in the shop, this Muslim man came from a neighboring country to me, um, uh, perhaps Pakistan, where um, back at the time, like we, the, the, the shape of your beard defines which sect of Islam do you follow? So if you shave, mustache and have like you maybe a Wahhabi Muslim. To me, his face resembled exactly the guys who were forcing me back in my country and telling me as a Shia, as a Hazara Muslim, that I'm the boss, you're nothing, you follow what I say. That kind of mentality and the, the way presenting, you know? So I had this sensitivity about that because I had just came from Afghanistan. The man comes into the shop, the guy who the kebab maker is an Afghani man like myself from the same background, and the guy gets uh, and says, "Give me ten bread man and the, the, the shop owner said, "No the bread I don't have ten because I've got customers here, and they go you know you pay a dollar for bread, and these guys are paying more because they have a whole meal. The man got upset and says, "No, I want ten bread, go and make some why can't you make like you know, this bossy man." Well, I started shaking. I started shaking, and and I, he didn't stop. Like he went for a run for five minutes something. I jumped up and grabbed him. <laughs> so because it was partly that the the man, the shopkeeper, I knew he couldn't speak enough English to argue with this man. I stood up and told him. I said, "You are blah 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 from blah 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 group also, and you tell my relative that he should go and make bread." He doesn't want to celebrate it. This is Australia. This is not Afghanistan. You can't do that in here anymore. I was so probably out of it that my friend was so. So she sat me down. She was a psychologist. So she sat me down and said, hey, let's, let's talk about that. I know understand. Like she had told, heard my story so many times. She says, what do you do with this man? I said, he's a Taliban. I want to kill him. Like, no, no, no. The only way that you would get rid of that anger is forgiveness. One, you are you sure that this man is the man who had come and shot and been involved in massacres in your village? I said no, I'm not sure, but I know them. These are the same. I said, oh, there, there, there it is. You know them? Who? And then I defined the people that I hated, and and they were the extremist Muslims who had killed women, children, and massacred people in my village, and. Um, then she broke it down for me I said, look, one, you don't know that if he's exactly the same person. Two, if he is and if you have proof, um, what would you do in that situation? You will just be on that cycle of violence. You will do the same to someone who's going to come back and do the same. And then isn't that the case? And I thought about this for a few months. I came back and from that day I changed. I said, all right, I don't hate anyone. I don't hate anyone, absolutely. like." doesn't matter what they do and I think that changed me and that changed my life I think it just really helped me get rid of a lot of emotion and negative emotions I had and I think that's where the solution might be for a lot of those conflict communities where you, you need to I think what I'm saying is that people of those areas also need to as uh, refugees and they also need to yeah, yes there is some racism here but it's not as bad as those countries you know in Australia yes they might have had a tough experience here they might not have had the best treatment in this country but you know what still the best place still the best place no one is putting a gun on your head for that reason you know they might just don't talk to me that's fine they wouldn't spat at me, like they wouldn't come and punch me in the face, rarely, you know, this happens very rarely, but it doesn't happen and, and for that reason I think that those families still have a lot of reasons to embrace it, to get out of that comfort zone. Sorry, yeah, long stories again. But.
0: Do you think that's something that public health would
2: need to be a bit more proactive about then instead of just having a service there, offering sort
0: of mental health services but going out directly to these communities and saying you are likely to be affected
2: by PTSD? I don't know, I, I, I think people have different mechanisms to cope. I, I, I've been there and I know that you know, if I had gone to a professional assessment I'd be diagnosed, and I was, you know, with PTSD and depression and all of that. But look, I, I think I've, I've managed well. Uh, And I've survived that without, and I think if they're okay to go through, they've got other cultural resilience, other resilience in them that makes them survive, I think just pick up the ones who drop, you know, really. I think, honestly, I I feel that culturally if you go to some of these communities and say, hey, you guys have some problem, it just adds on their problem, you know. But hey, that's another observation. Like I, I still think that the healthcare system in Australia is some of the best. The Australian society is still some of the best in the world. That doesn't mean we should stop there and don't preserve the good things of this country. I think we should, as a refugee, I would like to acknowledge the men and women who have made this. Like obviously the indigenous people whose land we are, but also the people who you read their stories of you know, in this, you know, 200 years ago life wasn't this easy in here, so a refugee needs to be fully aware of that as well. That. Yes, uh, we talk about Australian values, but n- I don't want the the, the the definition that Peter Datton is giving me about Australian values. But I like I like the Australian values that around this table we're talking the same thing at the same level. Although I came here as a refugee ten years ago, your parents came as a refugee longer than that, and uh, or your grandparents. Uh, and these guys in the same way, but we, we are looking at each other and equal, you know, at least no one directly tells me that, hey, you guys, you are less than me, you know? That happens in, in, people, in places like Afghanistan. My ancestors came there some 1300 years ago, and perhaps some of them were indigenous to the land. But I am still told, my, the community that I belong to, i still told that we are Mongolians and descendants of Genghis Khan and we need to leave, otherwise we'll be... And that's what is happening. Wow. You know what I mean? That's the difference, like this.
0: This has been a Global Ideas production in our lab series for 2017. Thanks for downloading the podcast. I'd like to give a special thanks to Mustafa Najib for being so open and honest and really putting a human face on what has become a very dehumanised issue. Also thanks to Peter Johnson for leading a terrific discussion and for continuing to shine a light on these issues. As always, if you're enjoying this podcast series, tell your friends about it. It's important to raise awareness of the issues at the heart of global health and development so that more people can join the movement for better health for all. And finally, do keep in touch. Subscribe to updates from us at our website, www.globalideas.org.au. Like our Facebook page and follow us at Globideas on Twitter. We have other great podcasts on SoundCloud, so check them out too. Thanks for joining us.